longest-running PC game series of all time, Microsoft Flight Simulator, predates even Microsoft's well-known Windows operating system product by three years. Microsoft Flight Simulator 1.0 was released in 1982, having been licensed from a smaller company that was making the game for several different computers of the era, though Microsoft was keen to demonstrate the graphical superiority of newer 16-bit IBM PC platforms, so they had a nicer-looking version which made use of a bleeding-edge color graphics adapter card that was in these newer computers whipped up so they could then slap their logo on and sell it to folks looking for something to do with their fancy, expensive new personal computers beside the typical business things. Beyond the licensed version, the company behind Flight Simulator, Sublogic, continued to release other versions for Apple Macintosh computers, the Commodore 64, and the Atari 8-bit family computer, among others, as they'd done since the first iteration of their non-Microsoft-branded flavor of the game back in the 1970s. The branded variation did well enough, though, that another Microsoft version, number 2.0, followed in 1984, which was then followed by 3.0 in mid-1988, and this continued every couple to a handful of years, with each new iteration of the game offering a more realistic, accurate simulation, from the layout of various airports to the tools you use to pilot the planes, to the graphics, the number of planes available, and other in-game customizations. The most recent version of Microsoft Flight Simulator, which is often referred to as MFS 2020, was released in mid-August 2020, and includes a compelling update from its predecessor. The terrain over which you fly while piloting your aircraft is simulated and updated based on real, high-quality cartographical, topographical, and texture data from Bing Maps, Microsoft's answer to Google Maps. This data is crunched in the cloud using Microsoft's Azure technology, and the results are, in many cases, fairly spectacular. This is not a game that I've played or feel particularly inclined to play, but the screenshots and videos that I've seen of gameplay are pretty incredible. This combination of elements pulled from across Microsoft's portfolio is intentional. It's meant to be a demonstration of what can be accomplished with these tools, and in that regard, it seems to be a fairly successful flex of cloud-based capabilities. But the game has not been without some hiccups in its early days, as digital aviators have explored this real-world-sized digital world, and folks looking to explore their hometown or familiar city have at times found that major landmarks are missing, or have been replaced with generic, often brutalist, replacement buildings or other structures. In some cases, structures that have little in common with the actual building that it's meant to visually replace. This is the consequence of incomplete or flawed satellite data, or in some cases, aging satellite or cartographic information, which Bing Maps is using for its mapping, direction-giving services, and which doesn't matter too terribly much for those applications, but which are fairly glaring errors in a game this detailed 
and otherwise realistic seeming. As a consequence, some fans have been slowly rebuilding their hometowns with data from Google 3D Maps, pulling the imagery from this competing product, processing it through a variety of outside tools, and then submitting it for use by Bing, and thus the Flight Simulator game. After being parsed by Microsoft's cloud setup, these new buildings and other landmarks, designed using Google's products, end up in Microsoft's digital version of the planet, which players can then fly around using their aircraft of choice. Another interesting oops moment that emerged shortly after the launch of this new game was an error that was eventually traced back to an edit made by a user of OpenStreetMap, which is an open-source Google or Bing Maps competitor that, kind of like Wikipedia, allows anyone to make edits and submit new data. An OpenStreetMap user entered some data about a building in a Melbourne suburb, but there was a typo in what this user submitted. They entered 212 for the number of floors instead of two. As a result, the release version of Microsoft's Flight Simulator had a simulated version of this suburb that contained an overall normal suburban landscape, but with a giant 212-story skyscraper, impossibly tall and bizarrely placed, needling its way out of an otherwise flattish planetary surface. The data which included this typo was actually corrected well before the game went live, so it's suspected that some of the information used to build the landscapes in the game were gleaned from earlier data and will only be updated periodically. Early versions of the game also seemed to replace all palm trees with somewhat menacing-looking obelisks, alongside many other generally harmless, mostly comedic issues with the landscape. None of them seemed to actually mess with the game's performance, and reviews have been quite good thus far, even with these sorts of errors still present. Some of the reviews have focused less on this product as a game, though, and more on what it might represent for the future of Microsoft's products and potential direction, especially in terms of how they apply all that cloud computing power that they've demonstrated. In a New York Times column entitled, I Tried Microsoft's Flight Simulator, The Earth Never Seemed So Real, Farhad Manju said, quote, The tech giant has done something uncanny here. It has created a virtual representation of Earth so realistic that nearly all sense of abstraction falls away. What you are left with instead is the feeling of actually being there, in which there is just about anywhere, from London to Seattle to Patagonia, and every point in between, end quote. Later in that same piece, he said of the game, quote, I found it to be most compelling as a preview of a new kind of digital experience. In a way that I've never before felt from a piece of software, the game plunged me into sustained meditations on the permeability between the real world and the online one, and it offered me some hope of a more realistic kind of online life in the future, end quote. What I'd like to talk about today is mapping the planet, digital twins, and world scraping. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I'd like to start with today comes from Engadget, and it's entitled, Niantic creates a 5G supergroup 
for planet-scale AR experiences. This very short piece is actually more of a quick overview of an announcement made by Niantic recently about a collaboration between them and companies like Deutsche Telekom, EE, Globe Telecom, Orange, SK Telecom, SoftBank, TELUS, and Verizon to form a group called the Niantic Planet Scale AR Alliance. Niantic is a company that has been focused on AR since their founding as an internal startup within Google in 2010. They made a fairly popular, though still somewhat niche, game called Ingress, and they made another game that became far more mainstream after that called Pokemon Go. They've since also made a Harry Potter-themed game, and they're currently in the process of making a game based on the very popular Settlers of Catan board game. AR means augmented reality, and augmented reality is a bit like virtual reality, except you can see the virtual objects in the real world. This is often accomplished by viewing the real world through a camera, like the camera on your smartphone, and then adding virtual objects to that view, often in such a way that it seems like those objects are within the real-world landscape, and even potentially engaging with real-world things that are actually there and tangible. Historically, the success of immersive AR has been a fairly mixed bag, and the technology has mostly relied on GPS locations and software that can roughly recognize when there's something three-dimensional in a shot, and then display graphical objects around that real object without overlaying it in an awkward way. Pokemon Go is a pretty good example of this, as it allows you to go to a GPS coordinate, find a particular Pokemon or Pokemon Gym, and engage with the information it feeds you, with the interface playing decently well with the world around you, but not perfectly, and not uniformly. Someone standing next to you, who's also playing, will see somewhat different things in somewhat different locations than you do. The Pokemon will not be in the precise same spot for everyone, down to the inch or even the foot. The next step, according to Niantic's announcements over the past few years, have revolved around a couple of interconnected efforts. The first is what's called the Niantic Real World Platform, which is predicated on making mapping and understanding the real world, using mostly but not exclusively visual technologies like smartphone cameras, more accessible to more people. In practice, this will likely mean enabling devices to collect such data automatically, or as part of a specific app, or even as a sub-process of a game that's currently being played, and then amalgamating all that data into information that can be parsed by software. This is a view of this specific location on the planet from this perspective. This is where it connects to other pieces of data that we have about other nearby locations. And here's what we're looking at. This is a chair. This is a person. This is a fern. This is the Eiffel Tower. This component of this next step effort requires software to collect and understand this data and an underlying system that will compile all of that information into something large-scale but also usable by Niantic for their projects, but also for other folks who might want to build augmented reality games or other software so that they'll have access to this template, this pool of real-world information that will be plug-and-play. They'll be able to build something, and that something can then just plug in to this system, and the data will be available as and when they need it. 
The second effort is related to that first effort in that it enables the construction of the real-world platform. This is where the aforementioned supergroup of telecommunications companies comes in. In order to collect data in this way, it's necessary to have sufficiently powerful devices with sufficiently speedy data connections in enough hands. 5G service, which at its best, under optimal conditions, is way faster than 4G, and at its worst is typically like a very good 4G service, is slowly rolling out around the world. And this group seems to be interested in mutually benefiting from a sort of tit-for-tat relationship predicated on the rollout of 5G. Niantic provides exclusive content for 5G users, which incentivizes the telecommunications company's customers to upgrade and probably pay more for premium services. And these services, in turn, help Niantic collect the data they need to flesh out this platform, and perhaps will even help promote their products on their services as well. Now, those specifics of this plan are mostly based on speculation that tech industry analysts have been tea-leaf reading from the announcements about this collaboration thus far. There's not a lot of definitive information available, aside from a press release here and there and some previous announcements made in 2019. So we don't know, at this point, precisely who agreed to what for how long and what this will ultimately look like in terms of deliverables on all sides. It does make sense that Niantic might want to set up this kind of relationship, though, because they are in a very good position to not just build increasingly impressive and immersive games, but also potentially to build something far bigger, more valuable, and perhaps even pivotal than that. To explain why that might be the case, let's take a step back for a moment and talk about the web. The web is the part of the internet that we can visit using web browsers. Chrome, Safari, Firefox, and so on. There are other parts of the internet, like the so-called dark web, but most of what's online that we can't see in typical browsers is actually pretty normal, non-illegal stuff, like architecture for the apps that we use on our phones, various sorts of file transfer protocols, and email and other communication services. A web crawler is a piece of software that travels around the web looking for information about websites, and finding connections between them. Most search engines, like Google, use web crawlers to figure out what links to what, and to assess website credibility and popularity. They also attempt to assess, generally, what a site is about, who's it for. And that information is then parsed and processed to figure out what to show people when they search for various terms and keywords using search engines. A web scraper is similar in some ways to a web crawler, but instead of just looking for connections and meaning, a scraper actually harvests all the information it can find from a site. And this is generally done on scale, which is part of what distinguishes it from you or me visiting a website and just copy-pasting everything there for our own use by hand. In some cases, web scraping can be used to compete with a rival company. You might use such software to keep tabs on a rival's pricing information, for instance, and then use another piece of software to automatically adjust your prices so they're always just a little bit lower than their prices. 
This is a common tactic on Amazon and other platforms, and in some cases, it's led to a spiral of price changes. When two companies have used scrapers and price changers to keep tabs on each other, and these changes just ping-ponged back and forth, creating a cascade of changes. This was the case with the book The Making of a Fly, which spiraled in price all the way up to $23,698,655.93 before the seller seemed to realize what was happening and reset the price to a more reasonable $106.23. The vendor had set their pricing bot so that they would always be selling this book for 99.83% of what their main rival was selling for. And that rival had set their own bot to change their prices to 100.27% of that first seller's price. These bots kept auto-scraping their rival's price, changing their own, and then perpetuating that spiral, which eventually led to that massively inflated peak price. This type of behavior can in some cases help populate services with information about the web, but it can also lead to strange behavior like that, or even illegal behavior, allowing for mass copyright infringement. If you scraped an entire blog and republished everything on a website that you controlled, for instance. Marketing and pricing seems to be one of the main uses of this technology, though. And it's gotten to the point that Amazon has recently stopped providing details for items customers have purchased in the emails those customers receive about the purchase, at least in some markets. An increasing number of free email clients, like Edison Mail and CleanFox, use a type of scraping technology to peruse their users' email for data of this kind. It then aggregates that sales data together into representative chunks and sells that mostly anonymized information to marketing data clearinghouses, which all kinds of companies can then use to figure out what the demographic they want to target will buy and at what price. This is useful data for sellers, and it's useful data that Amazon wants to keep to itself. Thus, it now sends receipts via email with an order number, date, and pricing information, but no information about what was purchased. For that, customers must log in to their Amazon accounts, which prevents the email-based scraping of that valuable marketing data. This is where we loop back around to augmented reality, because it turns out you can also scrape the real world for information, and this is happening on a pretty large scale already. The fitness app, MyFitnessPal, allows users to take photos of the nutrition information on the packaging of the food they eat. That means you take a photo with the camera on your phone, and the app parses that photo, looking for letters and numbers, and converts that photographic information into textual and numerical information, which it then adds to its database. If you scan a particular brand of sardines or a specific loaf of bread, that information will then be available for other people who use the app in the future, which is handy for users, but also incredibly valuable for network effect-based apps of this kind, which are in some ways only as valuable as the amount of information in their databases, whether that's information about people and their relationships, as is the case with Facebook, or information about various foods and their nutritional content, as is the case for MyFitnessPal. Google works the same way, 
Their software is immensely valuable, but arguably even more valuable is their stockpile of information about the internet and about the people on that internet, and their sorting and organizing of that information. That same type of competitive moat can be constructed between companies and their competition by scraping information from the real world, which we've already seen in a somewhat limited way in MyFitnessPal, and apps like Google Maps, which pull information from satellites and databases, but also from their own real-world collection of street view images, gathered using cars with cameras mounted on the top, and location information pulled from the devices of folks that are using their apps while in the car, which tells them, among other things, when there are traffic jams and what the speed limit might be on a particular road. Neantic's play here, then, seems to be to build themselves a gigantic moat as big as the planet. Instead of just collecting the world's nutritional information or traffic information, they want to make a digital twin of the planet, which will allow them to make games that take place within that digital twin, like a near-perfect version of Microsoft's Flight Simulator. But also, potentially, they can expand that twin's use to countless other fields, from construction to urban development to governmental and military purposes. A digital twin is a replica of a real-world something in the digital world, within software. Which is a really broad statement, I know, but this is a very broad concept. Already, it's been applied to replicating the pieces of products, so they can be then replicated within physics simulators and optimized to be more effective and efficient, and in some cases to be manufactured and shipped more sustainably. The software version of those products being more easily, cheaply, and quickly manipulatable, even to the point where you can tell a specialized piece of software to experiment with it, riff on it, make millions of different changes and tweaks and variations, and then spit out a better evolved version of that product. And again, this is iteration that can happen far faster than would be possible with a tangible, real-world version of the same product. Digital twins are used in the world of medicine, with twinned chemicals and twinned biological agents coded to interact and behave the same way they do in real life which in turn can allow drug makers to more quickly iterate cures and vaccines while avoiding many of the conflicts and side effects that would otherwise emerge, lacking the ability to test such things first within the safe confines of a computer. It's possible to map the dynamics of complex systems, finding the weak spot in an electrical grid or the threats faced by an ecosystem, as long as you can map these systems and create digital twins of suitable resolution, of suitable specificity and accuracy. If you can do that, then you can test them within this simulated space to see what happens if certain conditions or other variables change. It's been posited that at some point, most humans will have their own digital twin, a virtual version of ourselves that, by some measurements and for some purposes at least, fairly accurately replicate who we are and how we behave and how we speak and respond to things, to the point where we might actually be able to use these avatars as personal assistants or virtual world body doubles. The theory is that there's so much information being collected about us all day, every day, by the social networks we use, the stores we visit, the voice assistants that are nearby when we're going about our day, speaking to people, singing to ourselves, 
that at some point there will be enough information to create convincing doubles that could serve a variety of purposes. And though a very creepy concept in some ways today, it may be that having such a double who will respond the way that we would respond to most things, say 95% of the time, could be so useful that we get past our cringe responses and lean into the idea, providing more and more specific information over time so that our doubles become more accurate and we can offload more work and responsibilities to them, freeing up more time for ourselves. Imagine, then, all this information coming together. Virtual versions of us. Virtual versions of the real world. Virtual versions of everything. What would such a system allow a company to accomplish? There's a good chance that the games we play would become a lot more interesting and varied. The concept of the metaverse comes to mind here as a virtual shared space that serves as the entry point to all types of media of any kind. You go to this virtual shared space to watch movies, play games, access digital libraries, and even go to school, seek out information, go on dates, potentially just about anything. But it could also allow various entities to experiment with, for instance, political campaigns before ever paying a cent to marketing entities for billboards and Facebook ads. It could allow governments to figure out the best place to build new municipal buildings to help those governments figure out how best to screw over a rival government, monetarily or through more subtle manipulations. It could also allow scientists to try out theories on a scale and at a resolution not previously possible, and using methods that would not be safe or ethical in real life, while also allowing those that make products, be they drugs or chairs, to test their products and refine them, figure out the proper market fit, and perhaps even discover the optimal means of producing and distributing that product in the real world. The next step to accomplish such a simulation, or collection of simulations though, is to make sure the data-collecting, world-scraping devices and data-transferring bandwidth both exist and are in a sufficient number of hands. Thus, a company that is building a simulation of the world creates an alliance with a cadre of companies that sell the requisite devices and provide the necessary infrastructure to speed up their capabilities. book that I'd like to recommend today is called No Filter, The Inside Story of Instagram by Sarah Fryer. I've been hearing for years on the edges of tech stories reported about Instagram and social media and Facebook that the acquisition of Instagram and all of the turmoil and controversy and confrontation that happened as a consequence of that was interesting. But I'm not big into palace intrigue stories. I'm not really interested in rumor mongering, so I put off learning too much more about it. But I'd heard that this book was quite good, and it was produced by somebody who was in a position to know a great deal about what happened with the acquisition of Instagram by Facebook. And it turns out the book is a really good read. It's got some very compelling characters. It helps you understand a great deal about the industry and the place of social media within the larger tech industry, but also the monolith or seeming monolith that is Facebook as well. And of course, Mark Zuckerberg, who is the guy who wields an unblockable vote 
for all decisions Facebook-related. I don't want to give away any of the interesting turning points of the book, but there is some interesting conflict, a clash of personalities and ideals, and it does give you a sense of where both Instagram and Facebook, but also social media as a whole, might be going next. So if any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of No Filter by Sarah Fryer. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find the show notes and transcript for this episode and every episode at letsknowthings.com. You can find my blog at exilelifestyle.com. And you can reach out and say howdy on your social network of choice. I'm Colin Wright on Facebook and at Colin is my name on Twitter and Instagram. And if you're enjoying what I'm doing here on Let's Know Things, you might also enjoy my other podcast, Brain Lenses, which you can find wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week. Thank you.